Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining the Experts Only Podcast. My name is Tom Byrne, filling in this week for John Powers. Today, we welcome Dan Oros of G2VP, a venture capital firm out of Silicon Valley, where Dan focuses on sustainable investments. He goes into his history in clean energy and venture capital and tells a story about where he thinks the industry is headed. We hope you enjoy. Dan Oros, partner at G2VP, a venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley. Welcome to Experts Only Podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's awesome to have you on. To give our listeners some background on yourself, uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Ridgewood, New Jersey, which is uh, a town just outside of New York City. I did not know you grew up in Ridgewood, New Jersey, not too far from here. And how did you find your way to what you're, not just what you're doing now, but what you've done for quite some time in clean energy and venture capital? Well, I uh, went to college at Stanford and majored in industrial engineering and then ended up on Wall Street working at Goldman Sachs. And I was a currency trader where I was making markets in, in G10 currencies. And that was a really fun job, but I also felt like it was a, a job that over time would get automated, mm-hmm. which it turns out it has. And I wanted to learn uh, other investing skills. So at Goldman Sachs, it has a great program for uh, uh, rotating analysts in different divisions, and I was able to apply for different divisions, and there happened to be a group uh, that was at the time called Structured Investing that was looking for for uh, junior people to join the team, and I didn't really know what it did, but I applied and got the job, and it turned out what they did was uh, investing in tax-oriented project equity in, in 2005, so the summer of 2005. And what that meant at the time was tax credits generated by renewable energy, uh, which is wind power and solar power. And when I joined, they had just signed the deal to uh, buy what became Horizon Wind Energy. Oh, yeah, and they sure. they just signed the deal to make the first PPA partnership in rooftop solar PPAs with Sun Edison and BP Energy at the time. Yeah. Um, and Sun Edison was three people, Jay Gershaw, Ryan Robertson, actually four people. And it was, it was a really the very beginning of what they were doing. So Goldman was uh, invested in Horizon, right? Goldman had an appetite to do project equity for wind. And they had done uh, a bunch of different investments in joint ventures and then found a group that was the team that, be, that, that they then called Horizon. I think it was called Zilco Renewable Energy that had uh, both some projects uh, under development and a huge pipeline. So what Goldman did was said, well, we'd like to invest a couple billion dollars in these projects over the course of years. Why don't we buy the developer uh, so that we get proprietary access to all those projects? So Goldman bought the developer and then on the, on the idea that it would, it would invest in all the projects that were being developed. And what role were you what role were you playing at Goldman in that those first few ventures or those first few investments in clean so energy? By the time I showed up, those investments 
were already executed, but the capital hadn't yet been deployed. Okay. So I showed up on a team on a small group that started to deploy that capital and started to integrate those businesses and pipelines into the capital that we were deploying. Um, so I learned at the time how to underwrite project equity, learned under, on how to um, uh, analyze uh, partnerships and, and all of the, the nitty-gritty details of, of tax partnerships. And also, importantly, learned about the underlying technology. So the solar PV modules that were going into the projects and the, and the, wind, uh, the wind turbines, et cetera. So we learned about the fundamentals of those businesses and began making investments in technology companies alongside those project equity investments. And over the course of 2005 to 2008, built a portfolio of projects and what now would be called growth equity investments in a handful of those platforms and, and technology companies, and that included Sun Edison corporate equity, that included First Solar uh, before they were a public company, uh, that included a handful of other companies, you know, geothermal and uh, ethanol, uh, all of the clean tech sectors uh, you would describe at the time. And was Goldman one of the few players doing anything like that, putting some money into the corporates? Um, had VCs even started getting going in, in the space yet? Um, who else was participating? Uh, there were There were really... Limited participation with Santo Road VCs that it did accelerate at the time. As I remember, there were some smaller funds that were that were making uh, investments in venture capital, but were not Santo Road VCs. Notably, you know, uh, a, a group called Mission Point Capital. Yeah, uh, that was they were the, the early investors in Sun Edison, and they taught us a lot about this this kind of investment, um, as well as. Some funds that did get raised, like Vantage Point was one of the early Sand Hill Road VCs that raised a big clean tech fund. And then I would say the 2006 and seven time frame is when, you know, Sand Hill Road style of venture capital went, went big into clean tech. And, and how, so that's around the same time that you, you moved over into the VC space. So I want to hear both things, how, how you ended up doing that. Um, and also why these VCs and started participating in the space. So let's start with, you know, how did your career end up on Sand Hill Road? Well, I joined Kleiner Perkins in the spring of 2009. Um, Kleiner Perkins had raised a fund in the beginning of 2008 called the Green Growth Fund. And that fund's thesis was that clean tech businesses would require a larger amount of capital than a typical venture fund would be able to deploy over its life cycle, and that a growth fund made a lot of sense, and this was Kleiner Perkins' first growth fund. So about a year into its existence, I joined the team. My now partner, uh, Ben Corling, was one of the Kleiner Perkins' first hires, and we had worked together investing at Goldman in this similar asset class. So we did have some experience uh, in, in this sector that was different than the experience in Kleiner Perkins, as venture investors had brought to it, yeah. and I think we complemented that that team. So VCs in during this period of time, 06, 07, 08, 09, start participating in the space. How are they participating? Where are they coming in? How, what, what assets, what types of technologies do they like to put money into at that time? Right. So I think the most important thing to remember is that in, let's call it 2004 through 2006, in that period of time, there was a really limited number of uh, technology success stories. 
in terms of exits and IPOs for Sand Hill Road Venture Capital. It was kind of the, they, they were still coming out of the, the dot-com bust. Mm. However, if you looked on Wall Street, the IPOs that were happening were solar IPOs and ethanol IPOs. And there was a relatively large amount of success in the IPOs that happened in 2004 or five, And that's what Sand Hill Road saw. And if, if you're, if you're interested in going back into history, go look at the, the S1 for, for solar or SunTech Power, the Chinese uh, PD module or SunPower. They were all rapidly growing, great margin profile businesses that, that look just like businesses that you'd want to fund as a venture investor. So that is what I think created the, um, the primordial soup of the clean tech boom and Silicon Valley's interest in it. They said, wait a minute, we're not in any of these clean tech IPOs. How do we get there? And that's why they built practices. And what years do you consider the, the boom? I would say 2007 through 2009 or 10. Got it. Uh, I think some of the valuations and, and success stories in terms of, of paper valuations lasted into the financial crisis and through the financial crisis. But by, by 2010 or 11, I think the, the you know solar in particular pricing uh, was really getting challenged and, and margins collapsed and many of the business models fell apart. I even I even remember First Solar's public stock was north of uh, I don't even remember the price, but it was very high. And then the financial crisis hit, and it and SunPower and probably a couple of others just came crashing down. And those were public companies. Yes, my recollection is something on the order of twenty twenty to twenty five billion dollar market cap for those kinds of companies. Yeah. What, so what was the, the Green Growth Fund? What was the investment thesis? What, what types of companies uh, did you guys look for uh, to invest in? So, you know, at the time, Clean Tech, I think, was, was very focused on the idea that, you know, fossil, fossil energy and, uh, or, and or carbon intensive energy sources were going to get replaced by renewable or carbon uh, free energy sources. So part of the thesis was let let's go down the list of all of the different types of renewable and carbon free energy sources and find the find the winners in each of those uh, sectors and and try to invest in those winners and that was a part of the thesis and then as as you continue to analyze the changes that were going on and and again this is still mostly focused on energy you'd see. Other areas like smart grid emerging and the idea that uh, using digital technology to transform and make the power grid more efficient uh, was also very interesting and fit right into a clean tech mandate, so we would look at that. And then uh, using software to enhance the consumer experience in the power industry would lead you to a company like O-Power. Yeah. Um, so that's how you go from uh, you know renewable energy to uh, industrial technology. And, and software technology, and what now is our thesis at uh, G2 Venture Partners, which is applying emerging technology to more traditional industries sustainably. And you realize that these traditional industries have a massive uh, presence in the economy and also a massive carbon impact. And if you're able to bend the curve even slightly on these traditional industries using all kinds of technology, whether it's replacing fossil kilowatt hours with green kilowatt hours or using software to make their their operations more efficient, uh, you can have a major sustainability impact. 
Yeah, there's this so the, the the growing. Yeah, there's so many interesting companies out there now. Opower is an example of one that's been around for quite some time, doing things that weren't as obviously clean energy as first solar. Uh, but when you dig in a little bit, you find out that the the business that they've created is actually a piece of the puzzle, right? And it's a really interesting one because it caters to utilities, and there's a lot of those out there. And it's also important to remember, as an investor, you, you can't forget the fundamentals that you're looking for really excellent businesses, right? And the early days of the clean tech boom, there were a handful of very excellent businesses that were growing rapidly. And that's where the, the initial returns came from. So over time, you want to continue identifying where there are areas of technology disruption and then identifying where startups, whether they're venture-backed or not venture-backed, are creating and growing excellent businesses. Yeah. So let's let's actually start digging into a kind of fast forward, uh, get get away from the anthropology and the history of the sector and start thinking about today. What is the VC landscape today like in clean energy? Right. So one, it's not limited to clean energy. Right. Um, I would say it's, it's, it's expanding to a general concept of enterprise efficiency is one way to describe it. And that covers energy, but it also covers areas like transportation and industrial and manufacturing and agriculture. And so the investment lens has broadened to those different sectors. The other thing that you're seeing in those different sectors is um, a convergence of, of trends. Um, when we when we started investing in, in, in clean tech, the idea that the energy industry would be disrupted by the transportation industry or those two groups would care about each other was sort of a remote possibility. Now, <laughs> you can't tell the difference between them. Utilities are completely integrated into the, into the electric vehicle rollout, rollout and transportation companies, you know, auto OEMs are turning into mobility companies. Yeah. And they think about energy very strategically. So... It, it, the convergence of those trends is, is really critical to understand. And that's why at G2, you know, part of our investor base is broad array of, uh, of strategics that, that don't necessarily fit together, but within the, cons, uh, the constraints of looking at how technology is disrupting traditional industry, those trends are actually converging on, on um, each other. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? So your the actual investors in your fund are strategic. Of our investors, yeah, yeah. are strategic. Um, an example would be Mitsui. You know, they're a Japanese uh, industrial business. Yeah. Um, and you know, they they are looking at, at all of the areas that are important uh, to us, like transportation, like energy, like agriculture, like manufacturing. Each of those are are being uh, disrupted by trends and and different types of technology, but most of them are in the family of digital technologies that that they can help us with and we can help them with. And we have partners, uh, we have an auto OEM partner, we have an energy partner that all are minority and, and uh, investors in our fund that don't drive what we do. And, and we, we may make investments in areas that don't have anything to do with their interests. But what we found is that over time, the trends that we're investing around and the companies that we invest in tend to touch all of them. Yeah, and it's a way for them to keep a pulse on 
the more innovative companies and the more in- innovative business models that are out there. Right. So, you know, another way I'd like to describe it is we help them see around corners. Yeah. Right. I think that if you were an auto OEM, you probably were focused on electric vehicles 10 years ago, but you weren't focused on how a company like Uber might impact your business. Yeah. And now you certainly are looking around those corners. There's a lot more money, I think, from what I hear. I'm not remotely as close to it as you, but there is more money coming back into the the, the VCs to invest in you know the the big umbrella energy, um, clean energy type um, funds. Uh, is that a, an accurate statement? I mean, we've I've seen more. VCs pop up, fun, green energy, clean energy related VCs in the last two years. Yeah, I think so. And I think the, the LP interest there is driven by a combination of, I think there's a handful of families out there that have significant resources that are supporting and creating uh, these uh, and investing in these types of funds. Uh, there's certainly some corporate capital that's, that's coming into the sector mostly for strategic reasons. And there's also a, a, a growing uh, institutional ESG uh, type mandate that's out there that is driving investor interest in these types of funds. And then the last is I think returns are uh, pretty good. And the prospect of returns are excellent. And you know the capital will, will be looking for returns and, and, and be chasing returns. Uh, over time, so it it has I think emerged from the depths of what was a pretty pretty disappointing return set uh, from from the peak of the investing boom in, in the two thousand eight to ten era. And are 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 these? I mean the the logic that returns always had to fall had to be there seems so obvious yet yeah, yeah, there was a period of time where some people were trying to get people to invest in clean energy and clean energy assets, you know, that where the returns weren't supported. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very obvious thing, but the, the returns just have to be there, whether you're investing in the companies like you guys do or at the asset levels, like, like we do at clean capital, but um, that's a, you can have all the ESG goals you want, but if you're not able to show returns to your investors, you're not going to get their money. That's right. And, and what's tricky about, venture capital as a sector is that it's very difficult to project returns and it's very difficult to even, you know, because they lag uh, so significantly with time. So whatever you're investing in now won't turn out to be a return until five or 10 years. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, prospective analysis going on in terms of how people are allocating capital. So at, at G2, what are you guys, What you, you've kind of gone through some of the sectors that you guys are in, investing in. What 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 do you look at now? What's interesting to you guys? What trends are you seeing in the market that are, are really interesting that our listeners probably or perhaps are not seeing as closely? Well, some areas of interest of ours that that are interesting happen to be also hugely topical in the investing world, like the impact of autonomous vehicles on all of the supply chain of, of the transportation sector, and then every other derivative of that. We also look at uh, trends like last mile transportation and what does it mean and where are the investing opportunities around things like, like scooters and bike share and carpooling. Uh, we have a business in our portfolio, which is a fantastic business called Scoop, which is as the leader in enterprise carpooling. 
So in transportation, the, we likely will be continuing to invest across the, the connected autonomous electric shared trends for this fund and, and probably another decade beyond that. So um, what's, what is um, enterprise carpooling? Well, enterprise carpooling is, is basically utilizing a network of, of people, individuals that are, that are driving, say, longer than 30 minutes to get to work by themselves, utilizing an enterprise relationship, meaning if I work at Company X and there's a thousand people who tend to go from the city into the suburbs, that company knows that all the people are doing that. Why not create a really efficient way to link them up together and then also link them up with the company that's next door that also has that same problem. Mm-hmm. So Scoop uh, builds a really excellent network of, of those employees and then provides a way for those for their employers to subsidize those trips. And employees that commute together uh, and don't commute alone are much happier. They stay on their jobs longer. And it's a really inexpensive way to offer a, a major benefit to their employees. So what they've been finding is they're... Their customers, which are both the companies, uh, the employers, and the employees, uh, the longer that they use Scoop, the more they are, are supporting the program, and they find a, a virtuous back loop. And so they're building out these carpooling networks in a couple of different regional areas, driven by early adopter employers who want to create a benefit for their employees in, in a particular region that's that, that might have a traffic problem and, and where carpooling and, and commuting is, is a headache. So I'm sure they're in the Los Angeles and San Francisco markets to start. Yep. <laughs> we did some work, you know, we did some work on this and and obviously carpooling is not a new idea. The idea of using an app for carpooling is not new, but they have been and continue to be the most successful carpooling network that, that we've ever seen by multiples. And part of what makes them special is remembering that that the experience of the employee and, the, and the, the user is so important. And it's a community of people, right? It's yeah. not just a transaction. And treating it like a community of people has made, made it very successful. Very cool. Do you think in 10 years that we will, uh, will the, the normal suburban family have two cars? That's a really excellent question. <laughs> it might be that, that what, that the normal suburban family changes, meaning yeah. uh, not, not everybody is doing the same thing. There will be a lot more options than just having a car and having it sit in your driveway for most of the time or the parking lot of your office most of its life. I think you'll be used, utilizing mobility services of different kinds, like carpooling, but also things like Uber and Lyft, for a lot of the, the generic rides around town that you would do. Uh, certainly, everyone's utilizing it for the trips that, that that were normally done with taxis and such, and then and then the question of when you are driving a car because you love driving it or because you love the car because it does something particularly special, that's where I think the the, the, the car ownership market will be focused on. Oh, that's interesting. I, I have a I take the train to work and I walk to the train and there are I kid you not weeks that go by where I I have a car that sits in the driveway that I don't drive. Yep, and frankly, I think a lot of the East Coast markets have a great public transportation system that works that works out here in California. It's it's not as good, so like there's a lot more people driving by themselves, but that's changing. Yeah, I remember the the uh, what was it? 
I-10, the 10 in Los Angeles, just being a parking lot whenever I, when I was living out there. I couldn't stand it's that. Probably they, worse. It's probably worse now. They suppose, I think they have a train now, though, that goes from oh, okay. downtown to, to Santa Monica, to the Santa Monica area, which is mm-hmm. only like five decades overdue. <laughs> now you can get on a scooter once you get off the train. Exactly, for the last mile, right? All right, let's do a little rapid-fire VC stuff for some of the entrepreneurs who are listening. Yeah. Just quick, quick tidbits from you based on your experience. What uh, are the overall returns that VCs target? I think it's pretty typical for uh, a venture investor to try to find a way to make at least three to five times their money, but in, in the best-case scenario, more than 10 times their money on a particular investment. On a specific um, company investment. On a specific company investment. On a fund investment, what I've heard, some some easy lingo, is to think about a fund that gets a 5x return is an A fund, a 4x is a B, and a 3x is a C fund. Hmm. That's uh, pretty specific. Um, How many companies, when you're investing, do you expect to succeed versus fail? Well, when when we're investing, our our investing lens is, I would say, late growth. Late venture, early growth. So rather than a seed or Series A investor, we're looking for most of our companies to at least not fail, right? And and then a minority of them to succeed, and hopefully several of them to succeed spectacularly. What's that? So then throw some of your colleagues under the bus who are doing the early stage and Series A investments. Uh, what's going through their heads? How many do they th- if they make fifty investments? How many do they realistically think will succeed? Um, and, I'm, and I'm just speaking generically. I think they're probably expecting half of them to, to not succeed right. uh, in some way or another. But that's not that, you know, investing involves taking risk. Risk uh, is what makes um, uh, opportunities, uh, you know, that's what generates return. Um, and, and you need to be doing uh, things that are not obvious, things that are hard, and to generate uh, outsized returns. That's that's where uh, it comes from. If things are obvious and, and easy to understand, then then your evaluation will be high, and your your expectation of future return will be will be relatively low. Right. So that's the business. Why do these companies fail? The easiest explanation of why a company fails is that their product technology doesn't work uh, at all. That's one of them, um, and we. When we invest, we look to at least have gotten through that risk. Yeah. Uh, the next is that they're not able to uh, to scale revenue and margin at the same pace as, as scaling their operating expense, and, mm-hmm. and um, which then causes them to need to continue to raise and burn a lot of capital before um, they truly get to a place where their customers are are driving. Revenue growth and, and margin, they can send their margin from the customers to, to reinvest in growth. So, you know, in that case, it's execution and timing that matters a lot. If you have, if you start with a product that, that is in demand, it's great. But, you know, companies that have 20 employees are very different than companies with 100 employees are very different than companies with 500 employees. Yeah. Um, and going through that growth cycle is, very challenging on a on a execution basis, meaning you need to hire people and uh, organizations go through stages where you know everybody and there's no such thing as middle management, and then you add management layers and you add decision processes and and you add 
you know, external factors uh, that you don't have any control over. And, and you know, smart people can have great ideas and great products and, and still fail. How many deals do you see versus actually invest in? I think our ratio is probably in the 2 to 5%, meaning for every deal we do, we, we look at, at at least 20 and, and maybe, maybe multiples of that. And how many, how, making, yeah, how many deals? To, we're making four to six investments in a year and, and we're looking at, at hundreds. Yeah. And how many of those are just getting the pitch deck versus actually sitting down, understanding the business? In my head, I have some of those metrics, but, but <laughs> you know, we'll get hundreds and hundreds of pitch decks. We'll look at, we'll look hard and, and really engage with, I would say, dozens like many dozens of companies mm-hmm. and and then get down to to real work on a dozen or two yeah. companies uh, before we make those investments it's good for the entrepreneurs to know that uh, those numbers uh, lots of pitch decks go out and and the actual investment dollars it's uh, it's a tiny slice what, of the what we really work on is our efficiency in making decisions uh, both because we have limited time, and and it's important that, that we use it wisely. But of course, if, you know, our, the entrepreneurs have limited time as well, and it does it, it doesn't do anybody any good to to go down a path uh, because we can't make a decision. Yeah, totally uh, understandable. Uh, we try to do our best to to be as transparent as possible in our process, and and um, I think entrepreneurs should should ask that of whoever's whoever is uh, looking at their business when you know when our portfolio companies are going to raise capital the advice that we will give our our CEOs is when when they say oh we're meeting with XYZ and and, and it's really exciting we tell them okay we'll find out what their process is yeah what are they going to ask of you and when and when can they provide information about how they think and that type of conversation uh, can drive a, a, a much a much higher satisfaction interaction. Yeah. And for an entrepreneur, the importance of not spending too much time fundraising is, is a one-to-one ratio of what, you know, are you spending time fundraising or are you spending it on growing the business? Right. Now that said, you know, they're finding the right investor is hard and that means you need to look at, you need to meet a lot of different people and a lot of different firms to get there. Yeah. So it is, it is one of those work-intensive activities that, and time-intensive activities that you just have to invest in. Yeah. All right. We're winding down here. Last question. I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit here. VCs have to imagine a world that does not exist today. What do you envision in five to ten years in energy, sustainability, whatever? It's an open-ended question. Well, what, what I'm really focused on uh, right now is in the – Industrial workplace. I use the word industrial with with some a liberal definition of industrial. But just imagine places where a lot of people work, and they're typically going to sit at a computer somewhere. They're emailing people and various software tools to design stuff, to procure stuff, to make stuff. And it's been that workflow and that and that interaction environment has been the same for probably about fifteen or twenty years. I'm envisioning a an environment where Many of the tools and workflows that we as consumers have gotten accustomed to, like that, that where uh, companies like Uber and Amazon and Google have made our personal lives 
very mobile and very um, seamless um, where I can pay anybody anytime with digital money. I can order something I want on my phone and have it arrive the next day. Well, why can't an engineer who's designing a, uh, a bracket do the same thing without, you know, designing something, going to his supply chain manager, procuring it, doing paper quotes, picking up the phone, sending faxes? Why can't they just design the product they want and have it delivered on their door the next day? So I'm envisioning a, a, an industrial environment where those types of technologies are, are deployed and services that are created around those technologies are, are ubiquitous. Uh, around the workflows that that drive the industrial economy, so it's a, it's 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 not a typical way of looking at the future, but I think we're going to look at back and say, oh wow, wow, it was obvious that 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 type of future should exist, and it's and it's it's going to exist, and there's going to be some big businesses that support that uh, built over time, hopefully in our portfolio. We shall come back in five years and do this podcast again and see if you proved correct. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, Dan, uh, Dan Oros, partner at G2 Venture Partners. Thank you so much for joining the Experts Only podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Dan Oros, for a wonderful conversation. We hope everyone enjoyed it. Thank you to our producers, Lauren Glickman and Emily Connor. And thank you to our listeners for coming back to Clean Capital's Experts Only podcast. Be sure to go to iTunes and give a review. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.